I'm Benjamin Wittes, Editor-in-Chief of Lawfare. And I'm Susan Hennessy, Managing Editor of Lawfare. You're listening to Rational Security on the ER podcast feed. For more of our columns and exclusive Lawfare content, read us at foreignpolicy.com. This email comes in. What are you thinking? Honestly, my takeaway when all of this was going on is that someone has information on our opponent. You know, things are going a million miles an hour. You know what it's like to be on a campaign. We just won Indiana, but we're talking about a contested convention. Things are going a million miles an hour again. And, hey, wait a minute. I've heard about all these things, but maybe this is something. I should hear him out. Okay. When you read the parts about the Russian government or Russia supporting your father, did that put off any sirens in your head? Honestly, I don't know. I mean, I think this was, again, just basic information that was going to be possibly there. I didn't know these guys well enough to understand that if this talent manager from Miss Universe, you know, had this kind of thing. So I wanted to hear him out and play it out and see what happens. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the looks like I picked the wrong week to stop sniffing glue edition. I'm Shane Harris, boy reporter. I love to sniff glue. It's a little early for glue this morning. You know, it's even early for scotch. And yeah. yet. And yet. Because just when you think, just when you thought things couldn't get more crazy, more like a tele- telenovela, a badly written telenovela at that. What do you think the chances are that we're going to get through the recording of the Rational Security podcast this week without a news break of some kind? I give us like one in three. Yeah, I feel like, I feel I think like those the Trumps are good like to sleep in a little bit, so we might be safe till not the 10:30. not the president. The president's up at six thirty. He was tweeting this morning. Yeah, but, but Don Junior is the son. source of all. Uh, yeah. of all good Don Junior, according to the president, is a high quality individual, I'm, and I'm glad of that. Because if my father ever called me a high quality individual, I mean, I'd throw myself. That sounds like a grade of meat. (laughs) (laughs) Like, and that's something my dad might say, but it would be followed up by like, "And you're not living up to your full potential." (laughs) Potential. Didn't you think that was implied? (laughs) I'm very disappointed in your low quality judgment. Oh man! All right. Well, this week on the podcast, well, first of all, I'm here with Susan Hennessy, Ben Wittes, and Tamara Kaufman. Wittes, the gang's all here in the Good Jungle Studio. Hi, everybody. Hi, Shane. Um, this week, President Trump's eldest son met with a Kremlin-connected lawyer to get Russian government dirt on Hillary Clinton. No ambiguity there. <laughs> <laughs> Iraqi forces liberate the city of Mosul from ISIS, and President Trump and Vladimir Putin sit down for their first face-to-face meeting. Um, All right, let's start with the obvious, uh, just to catch everyone up. Uh, Yesterday on Tuesday, uh, the New York Times, just as they were set to publish uh, email that Donald Trump Jr. got last June uh, from a British pop star publicist, let me see if I can get this straight, who represents a singer and his father with whom the Trumps have done business to broker a deal for this Russian lawyer who hates the Magnitsky Act to come to Trump Tower to give information that was damaging on Hillary Clinton. That all broke yesterday. Um, Donald Trump Jr. decided to go ahead and put the whole email out so everyone can read it for yourself. And we applaud his transparency. Hey, he was very transparent. He was very... high-quality decision. I will say the um, explicit nature of this email was such that if, like, an anonymous source had sent it to me, I would presume it was fake. Yeah. Because it was just... It hit every talking point that the intelligence community has been hitting about... Russian collusion and meeting with the Trumps and we're doing this to, because the Kremlin wants to help your father. And it right. was it's really the pretty Russian shocking. Russian government offering information through an intermediary 
in order to help President Trump's it, campaign, explicitly. which was, explicitly. Right, explicitly, which which was stated as it was a given that the Russian government and was just trying to help part the Trump of campaign. the effort, right? right? Like as if it. this was something everybody knew was going on. This is just part of the effort. Of, so, you know, the so I, th I think we should we should pause a minute here to give some expert advice uh, about how in the future uh, we can be more communicative in these emails. So first of all, I think... Um, Please include your bank routing information. No, no, no. I think there, there's some key pieces of information that are not in the email that I think any good counterintelligence officer would want. For example, uh, Don, comma, in your capacity as an agent of a foreign power, comma, mm. would you meet with mm. your handler? Um, you know, they, they left that out, and that's going to cause a few investigative investigators a little bit of uh, a hiccup. Um, but beyond that, it's it's pretty naked. So the publicist's email is super explicit, mm -hmm. and that's shocking. Like, who would actually write that in an email, right? right? But then the next shocking thing is that Don Jr.'s response is, I love it. Particularly right? later in the summer. Right. Yes. So it's not even like, hmm. Like, you know, as we get closer. <laughs> as the convention's right? wrapping up, maybe. I love it. And <clears throat> immediately looping in the campaign manager and his brother-in-law. <laughs> well, to your point, too, the... Especially later in the summer, I mean, the first thing that signaled to me was, aha, okay, so he's envisioning this as part of some kind of a rollout or a strategic release of information, which undercuts any suggestion that this was just some random one-off meeting that he had, particularly because he appears to either have some insight into what this information might be or some hope for it, and doesn't at all seem to think that it's strange that this source is offering it to him. So I have a question for you, Shane which is one of the things I've been stewing about ever since uh, the, this story started breaking over the weekend, um, is how it connects to your story. Uh, that is the story of uh, uh, this eccentric uh, octogenarian, now deceased, uh, uh, opposition uh, dirt digger uh, who uh, tries to go uh, deal with Russian hackers to recover the lost uh, Hillary Clinton emails, which sounds like some Indiana Jones and right. the lost Hillary Clinton emails as <laughs> an <laughs> archaeological relic. Raiders um, of the lost server. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I go back and forth about this and yeah. say, okay, I, I can tell myself three stories about it, and yeah. I'm curious which like which ones sound plausible. One is these are isolated incidents, right, where um, – you know, there's some tone that the campaign has set in which it's kind of okay to hang out with Russian operatives. And so there are these isolated cases in which people do, and it all involves getting dirt on Hillary. So it happens that we know of twice. I suspect we may learn of some more cases, but they're not basically connected. Second possibility um, is that, you know, the Trump campaign fills itself with people who are A, grotesquely irresponsible human beings, and B, don't have a problem with Vladimir Putin, and that the Russians really notice that this is a recruitment opportunity. And so what you're seeing is two instances where uh, Russian operatives are probing the campaign to see what they can get done. And the third possibility is that these are actually... Uh, really deeply connected, right? That they're 
um, that there's a long-term Russian effort to help the campaign uh, and that it's done in some degree in coordination with uh, elements of the campaign. And these are two examples of that. And so my question to you is, to what extent do you see these two things as connected and how do you evaluate it? So I think that there's evidence to, that would say that your first and second scenario are arguably true. I mean, I think that you could, I'm not saying that they are, but like, I think you could marshal evidence from what we know now to make the case that either one or two or both are true, whether they're connected or part of a systematic operation that was coordinated and had someone in charge of it. I still think that's the sort of the big unanswered question where I think these stories lined up. And I've been thinking a lot about this, too, is that at a minimum, they give you two vivid illustrations of a campaign that was completely receptive to both the idea and the actions of working with either directly with Russian individuals to get dirt on Hillary Clinton or having connections to people who were trying to do that. And whether that's about the campaign setting a tone that people then felt they could go off kind of as freelancers, uh, that's a big question. I would have been a little more inclined to believe the freelancer part until this latest story because it's the president's son. And, and campaign it, manager. And campaign and manager. Son -in -law. And his son-in-law, now White House advisor, which brings it directly into the inner circle. I mean, if you're just distinguishing between the newsiness, I suppose the Smith story is the first signal of collusion, and this is the first signal that the inner circle is open to the idea. Um, but I think this, what you're putting your finger on in the third scenario is really the important question here is like, to what extent do we distinguish this as an environment in which people kind of felt emboldened to go off and do it? Or, you know, sort of the, if you're looking like at the few good men scenario, right? Did someone go you ahead and do the code red? Or did somebody, you're goddamn yeah. right, I order the code red, right? Yeah. And that's kind of, I think, where we are in the spectrum You right need now. me on that I, wall. I, I do think there's a third possibility. Um, and that's, you know, there's been a lot of sort of speculation, especially among sort of former intelligence officers, that this was essentially a test, right? The, um, you know, the Russians were running her up against them to see in a way that there was plausible deniability and sort of, you know, wishy-washy what the material was in order to see whether or not there was receptivity. And, and so I think there clearly the, uh, was receptivity. And there clearly was, <laughs> but that there is a coordinated strategy, but it's not on the part of the Trump campaign. It's on the part of the Russians who are running a coordinated influence operation yeah. and hitting up against Peter Smith in one area and Don Jr. in another. And that that, as we see all these threads come together, the thing that's going to unite them, they are all connected. It's that the connection is is a Russian effort and not sort of the Trump team. So we're looking it at it does, through the wrong end, maybe. Well, yeah. but it does leave the Trump campaign and now the Trump presidency in a very, not just a disadvantageous, but a really awful position. Because if that is really what's going on here, if it was a Moscow influence effort that was driving in a bunch of different directions and found this receptivity, the Trump folks are in the position of either being naive and getting played, right? Or uh, being so cynical and uh, careless of the national interest, careless of laws and norms that they were willing to play along. Neither of those is good for them. And what to me was very interesting about the way Don Trump Jr. released these emails and then went on Sean Hannity and the evolving uh, defense that is coming out in, in um, talking points of those who are supporting Trump on this, you know, he's basically saying, why is this a big deal? 
other campaigns did this too. You know, the Hillary Clinton campaign took information from the Ukrainian government about Paul Manafort. So what's the big deal? And all of that, I think, just <clears throat> reinforces the sense that this is a group of people who don't understand or don't care that Russia is an adversary of the United States, that its actions during our presidential campaign were designed to harm our country and harm our system and harm our democracy and harm our efficacy in the world and our national interests. And and so there's just no way that they can defend themselves that doesn't make them look like they deeply don't get something that is deeply important to the United States of America. And I, I that can't be good for them in the long and run. And what a good thing it is that Congress has responded by rising up, putting party aside, <laughs> real and, and, and realizing the gravity of the moment and saying, maybe this isn't the time to have small squabbles about health care or about getting well, our little piece fair, of the agenda. To be fair, health care is not a small squabble. No, it no. is a major, major issue. No, no, but I, I agree with I, you that I, it's a failure of courage on I, your I, I agree that it is not a small issue, but uh, fighting about um, you know, using this moment as an opportunity to push through your health care bill rather than realizing the gravity of the situation and the scope of the, the national security emergency that we're facing is uh, not the, in the highest traditions of the greatest deliberative body uh, the world has ever seen. Uh, by the way, Shelley called uh, in, in a wonderful little sonnet, uh, described the Senate by which he meant the British Parliament, but he contains the line, the, a Senate time's worst statute unrepealed. Yes. And I think that <laughs> may be uh, good to remember uh, at this time. I mean, one thing I think is really interesting is that already you can see like the Trump strategy here, which is to say that the Trump senior had no idea about this meeting. He didn't know anything about it, which is just implausible on its face. I mean, possible, but we know he's in the building. We know he mentions these emails. He appears to be sort of a micromanager. This is his inner circle. Like it just, it doesn't add up. And I think this is, they are on a collision course right now with congressional investigators and with Mueller's team. Because if they want to adhere to this talking point of Trump didn't know anything about it, eventually Congress is going to ask one of them that or right. ask all of them that. And when they lie in that circumstance, then they are going to have serious legal issues. Well, so just to that point, there are two things. In the emails, the, this lawyer, Rob Goldstone, uh, says uh, makes reference to Rona, the president's personal assistant, in saying that he's happy to provide the information to Donald Trump through Rona. So they're at least right there envisioning this. And th this clip has been going around social media in the past 12 hours so I don't want to get, you know, put too much stock in it. But there appears to be a press conference that Trump may have given the same day of this meeting where he alludes to dirt on Hillary Clinton that's going to come out. And it has raised these questions of is what he is saying publicly about promising dirt on Hillary being informed by things he is hearing privately from these sources. Right, because that seems to be his practice in a lot of <laughs> other instances, you know, that he has a conversation or there's some kind of document or briefing that's given to him. And then in his next public statement, he makes some oblique reference right. to it. We've seen that over and over again. And so it wouldn't be surprising if he were doing that in this case, too. But at this point, that's just supposition. What I would say is that 
whether or not there concrete evidence emerges to show that the president was aware of this in real time or not. I I think about Iran-Contra, where, Mm. you know, immediately those in the White House around President Reagan worked very hard to isolate him from the scandal. And they all worked together to protect him and to tell a story in which he didn't know and he wasn't aware. And ultimately, down much later down the road, it became clear that that wasn't entirely true and he was aware um, of chunks of it. But even that concerted effort, you know, he was never prosecuted, etc. It still stained his presidency. It still... Um, sank, you know, just sank the whole White House under a weight. And I don't think that that's something that you can escape by saying, well, he didn't know about this meeting. And right. one thing that's going to be relevant is because he placed all of his children on the transition team, they were all subject to that congressional preservation order saying to preserve all of their emails, all of the records of the campaign. Mm-hmm. And we've seen how careless they are with emails. And so the kind of treasure trove of information of all of them talking to one another, I, I can only imagine what the Mueller's irony staff is if reading. this comes down to deleted emails. <laughs> By the Trump campaign. Well, so, and the so, irony, too, and going back to your point, Susan, about kind of where do we go from here? And, and you know, it's clear that part of what's going on here is, as the New York Times put it in a kind of behind the scenes story last night, a circular firing squad. Yeah. Right. And so even though these guys are all members of the family, at a certain point, they're out to protect their own skins relative yeah. to one another. And that means that it's just likely to be more disclosures. I, I think there's a, there's a really there important point related to that, which is, you know, in a normal presidency, when you have a scandal, there is somebody in charge of scandal response. So in, uh, for example, take the major presidential scandal that people will most remember, which is the, the Clinton-Lewinsky stuff. You know, David Kendall, who was President Clinton's lawyer at, Wilmer, uh, at, at, at Williams and Connolly, ran the response. And that means that he, uh, he had access to all the people involved, uh, and Williams Connolly really knew what Ken Starr could figure out. And that allowed you to plan. It allowed you to strategize. It allowed you to sort of figure out what the maximum possible damage was. Uh, that requires that, A, there's somebody competent in charge, and B, that everybody's working together. Uh, now, with all due respect <laughs> to Mark Kasowitz, uh, that is not what's going on here. Right. And uh, no one has access to all the witnesses. N- these people are not talking to each other. So nobody knows, including the participants, what the scope of the truth here is. And that means that uh, it's very, very difficult. You know, the, the, the time stories today and the Politico story really make clear that this caught a huge number of people in the White House completely by surprise. And when you have a situation in which the people don't actually know what the scope of the problem is, nobody knows the scope, the full scope of the problem here, not even Donald Trump. Yeah. And when that happens, there's, it's very, very difficult to control it. All right. To be continued, as we are fond of saying. Uh, let's move to the other huge, frankly, story of the week, which would have been a huge story any other week, which I feel like we're also saying every other week. Um, Iraqi forces have liberated the city of Mosul from ISIS. There was a 
uh, a concerted major campaign to take back that stronghold, which was their major stronghold in Iraq. <clears throat> the other stronghold, of course, is Raqqa in Syria. Um, this is a huge moment uh, in the timeline of the uh, international coalition against the Islamic State, at least as a territorial force. Um, Tomorrow, I want to start with you on this. Um, we look forward to the days when cities are liberated, and then it seems like we always have this conversation of what's the plan for the day after, right? And that that is the much bigger challenge than taking back uh, a city from an occupying force. Not to say that taking back Mosul from ISIS was easy. It was being described not as a block-by-block -block fight by Iraqi commanders, but as a meter-by-meter -meter fight. Uh, <clears throat> and a, a lot of lives lost on the Iraqi side, to be sure. Um, but let's talk about what is the plan for the day after uh, so that this uh, we don't find ourselves repeating this cycle of occupation. Right. Well, I think that that's precisely the question, because the United States and our coalition partners and the Iraqis themselves have now been through several rounds of fighting against uh, jihadi Sunni insurgency, uh, beating it back and then not being able to get the politics right uh, and and the kind of societal socioeconomic circumstances right to prevent people from being willing to let these insurgents and jihadis back into their communities again. So, you know, with the surge in Iraq, uh, President Bush was able to end the civil war, you know, create the Sunni awakening, create an opening for uh, Iraqi politics to be more inclusive for Sunni Iraqis to feel like they really had a future there and a voice um, and that effort was stymied by Iraqi Prime Minister Maliki after he won election the second time. President Obama was willing to acquiesce in his power and not exert American influence over Maliki as he began to behave in a way that really scared a lot of Iraqi Sunnis and created this opening for ISIS to emerge out of the ashes of al-Qaeda in Iraq. And so here, you know, after ISIS took Mosul uh, in 2014, Obama had to go back into Iraq, exactly the thing he did not want to do, mm. largely because the politics had failed and the United States had failed to exercise its leverage over Iraqi politics. So did we learn our lesson? You know, the, the military battle uh, to liberate Mosul has been going on for nine months, uh, spanning both the Trump administration and the end of the Obama administration, neither of those administrations put much energy into planning for the day after for the uh, the funding that would be needed to just physically reconstruct. And uh, anyone who's seen the video footage that's coming out of Mosul can see just the city is leveled. Yeah, I mean, houses are gone, harrowing. roads are yeah. gone. And that's because it was such a, a meter by meter yeah. battle. Um, so the, the financial needs are tremendous. There are hundreds of thousands of displaced people who need to return. Uh, and it's not even clear kind of where the bulk of authority will sit. Will it come from Baghdad um, or will there be stronger local government uh, in, in Mosul and in the surrounding area? And none of this has been worked out. So just today, as we sit, the anti-ISIS coalition partners are meeting here in Washington at the State Department to begin to talk about this. Good timing, guys. Yeah. Uh, and Never uh, too late. Never too late. 
And we're doing this, of course, in the context of uh, the president wanting to cut the foreign assistance budget by 30 percent, the State Department being basically unstaffed. So the United States isn't very well prepared to engage in this. But and can I sort of end a potentially naive question? And that's that in, in a lot of different contexts in, like, in Syria and elsewhere, we've talked about sort of the United States ceding its position and, and sort of um, creating a vacuum into which some other power steps into China or Russia or, or some other group that has interests. Um, so you've described sort of like the vacuum, um, the the failure of politics and the vacuum that creates for insurgents. Um, if the United States essentially just fails to step up here, doesn't come up with a plan, doesn't come up with funding, are there other sort of world power interests that might step in to fill that void and, and sort of set their agenda in ways that are positive or negative? I mean, what happens if, if Trump essentially says, I don't I don't care about that. I don't care what happens. Uh, that is not a naive question. <laughs> it might be the question. I mean, look, we've talked a number of times about the fact that when it comes to global affairs, the Trump presidency is kind of running an experiment of what does world politics look like if the United States refuses to lead, right? And this is yet another example of, you know, or another component of that experiment. What I would say is there are a lot of countries that see a stake in Iraqi stability. There are a lot of countries that have been and remain partners with the United States and the Iraqi government, by the way in stabilizing Iraq. The Japanese invested, I think, $4 billion after the Iraq war in reconstructing Iraq and helping the Iraqi government with you know, local governance and things like that. So it's not as though the United States is the one and only actor here. And the fact that we're having this coalition meeting in Washington, I think, is actually meaningful. Um, but it's also true that the bulk of the external support to the Iraqi army, to the Iraqi government in this situation is American. Um, you know, Australians are there and others are there on the ground um, and others will donate money. But there is this notion that the United States has to drive the agenda, as in so many other global issues. Um, and so I think there's a real question, but I don't think that there's another rising power like a Russia or a China that has such interests in Iraq that they would step into the breach. What's more likely is that those who do have a stake in other things about Iraq, like, say, Iran, will secure their own interests in Baghdad and in the South. And they don't, you know, they wouldn't mind if Sunnistan kind of remains a chaotic, violent mm -hmm. mess. Is there also just, I mean, just to take stock for a second of the liberation of Mosul and I wonder what is the symbolic significance and the importance of beginning to dismantle the caliphate, right? I mean, ISIS's whole raison d'etre, it's not just a soterra, it is to be a governing occupying force, right? To be a territory, an Islamic state uh, in that region. And they are now being denied that. And it seems like only a matter of time before Raqqa falls and there may be pockets of resistance, but it seems that the, the notion that they are a, a governing force that is capable of bringing services and stability to a region and imposing its law has like literally been blown away. So how does that play into, you know, the broader kind of global countering violent extremism trying to fight ISIS? I mean, it seems to me that's that is not an insignificant 
thing that has been accomplished. I mean, Phil Walter um, did write on Lawfare, I mean, almost a year ago at this point, an article sort of about that exact point that um, once you sort of denied the the territorial stronghold or, or existence, what you would see in all likelihood was a resurgence of sort of of terrorist attacks in the West and sort of a do it wherever you can and that right. there, there might be seeing, cascading yeah, yeah. consequences. Yeah, I would just point out that at the time, uh, Phil Walter was really the only listener to Rational Security. <laughs> and, and so it's the least that we can do now is, uh, is actually to give was. a shout out to, <laughs> to You should have listened pieces. to Phil a year ago. You should have listened to so Phil read, and you should have listened to us. He was on to something. Read Phil and, 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 and read Phil's piece and, and, and you should also uh, 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 consult his, his excellent blog project, Divergent uh, Options. Yeah, that's great. That's Absolutely. And, you know, I think that Phil's piece is part of the broader debate that we've been having about ISIS and about jihad, the trends in global jihadism, if you will, which is kind of how much does ideology matter? How flexible is the ideology of ISIS? Because they did set up their their model as a state model. They attracted a lot of recruits on the idea that you could come live in an Islamic state, you know, just like it's meant to be. Um, and it's clear that the the flow of foreign fighters into Iraq and Syria has declined precipitously, partly because of efforts by surrounding states, but partly because they're losing on the battlefield right. and that that place, that beautiful Islamic government doesn't seem yeah. to exist anymore. You know, but does that actually mean that this movement is weaker or does it mean, as Phil was suggesting, that it will pop up in other ways inside Iraq as more of an, an insurgency? And we are seeing an uptick in mm -hmm. suicide bombings in Baghdad and other places and more attacks on the West. And this is a, to bring us to a close. There was just one statistic that I found so startling uh, in the battle to, to retake Mosul. Uh, obviously, the U.S. military has a long history lately in Iraq. Number of U.S. casualties? Five. Yeah. It has uh, been an incredibly lopsided uh, campaign in terms of lives lost. I don't know the number of Iraqis. Well, the, but so the Iraqi military has taken a loss rate of a, over 25%, I think, which is it's, extraordinarily high. Yeah. It's like debilitatingly high. Yeah. We'll have to keep that in mind as the as we're going forward, obviously. Um, let's go to the uh, other big news of the week. Uh, Trump and Putin, finally together at last at last <laughs> at long last we meet i hope the, they're going to be our musical duo for the they for, might. For, for the closing credits i mean they might i mean reunite we should rescore <laughs> the meeting peaches and her sure oh, <laughs> feels so good <laughs> it was a beautiful moment they locked eyes that was an early 80s reference for all you babies out there listening <laughs> to national security we're um, very hip you know in the in the 20 to 25 uh, age groups so. uh a lot's been made about the optics, actually, of this meeting. I mean, some people were uh, apparently in Russian media, um, the clip where it's Trump holding out his hand to, to Putin, in. leaning in for the handshake, and what is, what is Putin kind of doing the psych. Uh, what is it about really Trump with, like, with Marcon, with Angela Merkel, with Trump? The, the body language. It's, yeah. gets, it's all about the hands. It's yeah, all about the well, hands. The, and the bringing you into his space. I mean, and it's, that it's, there's uh, maybe no like, intellectual depth. It's a power handshake. At all, yeah. so it's, it's a dominance. Are... It's a dominance gesture. Right. Yeah. But I mean, it, mm. it does attract a lot of more attention with Trump than it does with just about any. But maybe, maybe, but maybe that's because we know what comes out of his mouth is meaningless. Well, he's doing Although, it to deliberately. Be fair, there, was, there was a tension. <laughs> Clinton with did Obama. something similar, though. There 
there was a tension with Obama, sort of that that thing of him, that um, picture of him glaring right into Putin's eyes. Right. I mean, that got yeah. that was front page coverage here, like denying him the the handshake that he wanted. I, there was a little bit of that yeah, kind of whole dissertations have been yeah. written about the physicality of global affairs. So. One one thing I thought, and maybe it's just my personal uh, bristling here. Uh, there was a moment where Putin turned to the reporters in the room and said, are these the ones who have been giving you so much trouble? <laughs> yeah. And then that, he and the let's president take of the care United of States you, right? laughed. That was a little on the menacing side. Yeah. It was super menacing. <laughs> and I will say to his credit, Trump did not seem to be like, yeah, sure. He was just kind of like, ha ha, yeah. Huh. I don't know if he got the joke or not. It, it struck me as he was laughing along, but not himself um, quite being as menacing as, as President Putin. But... Um, but but the, that was part of the weird thing about this encounter, right? So, and it's part of what's happened to the Trump presidency is that throughout the campaign and the transition, they kept talking about a partnership with Russia in a way that made a lot of folks like us kind of anxious. But then as the Russia investigation sort of suffused their early months, it became clear that politically they couldn't simply play for a partnership with Russia. And so this meeting had to be for them in terms of how it looked to the public, both talking tough to Russia and trying to build a partnership with right. Russia. Right. And that's a very delicate it's dance, very even delicate for dance. a more adroit politician than but Donald Trump. But was there any real talking tr- tough to Russia? I mean, they were sort of obsessed with this. Sort of, they did bring up election interference. But even in their own account, right, so Trump and, uh, and Tillerson's own <laughs> account of what happened. Let me get this out of the way right, right. up front. Right. Right. And <laughs> actually, they never say, they bring it up, but they never say, you know, that they that it's unacceptable, that there'll be right. consequences that if, if it occurs in the future. Future, sort right. of right they they appear like they mentioned it in passing and then moved on so I just if if that was an effort to talk tr- tough to Russia what a bizarre strategy yeah I mean they would also argue I think that the talking points on Ukraine were tough talking points that the talking points on Syria were tough talking points although in reality what they were looking to do on Syria was to build a partnership with Russia and they claim that they've successfully done that although we don't see any concrete results. Although in that sense, they don't appear to be more delusional than the last uh, 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 Secretary of State, who also went through serial uh, efforts, efforts to yeah. build a partnership with Russia, each of which was was uh, more uh, silly than the previous one, and in which Lavrov made a fool of him over and over again. And I think... They, what, what the irony is that what Trump has done here is, uh, and, and Tillerson, is that they've adopted Kerry's idiotic policy of, of trying to trying to reach an understanding with Putin about the disposition of Syria. And it was but dumb to, when the Obama I, administration tried to do it, where, and it's that, still dumb. That's maybe a way also to read the what was the utterly bizarre series of tweets about forming an impenetrable cybersecurity initiative. <laughs> yes, and by the way, we Russia. are obliged to say here that nothing in cybersecurity is impenetrable. Right. It was one of the reasons so, why no, it was utterly bizarre. But the working group was going to be impenetrable. <laughs> if you, I mean, if you read this, it, it obviously got a huge you know, backlash of the fox in the hen house kind of thing. But I mean, I, I wonder if, in fact, if what, if what the president was trying to do was something of a reset and Putin says to the president, um, well, we should form together an initiative where the victims of hacking too. And Trump says, that sounds great. And he thinks it's a deliverable. And then 
apparently quite obviously his aides pull him aside and be like, okay, no, 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 no. There's like a thousand reasons why that was a bad move and you fell into a trap perhaps. But I wonder if the way to explain why he would do something that from the outside seems just so stupid, frankly, was because he was trying to come out with some kind of deliverable about reset. I I think it is more about reset than about a deliverable. I think that they... They still, and it's kind of bizarre in context that he and his close advisors clearly thought that there was still a way to put this whole hacking issue in a box and that a working working group would put it in a nice little box and they could move forward. And that's, that's, that truly is delusional. And And his advisors know that's delusional. Well, so do you think that's right? And I think people like Tom Bossert and others, I mean, there was, was only one advisor was in the room. He says this thing. Uh, he agrees to this thing with Putin. It comes out, he tweets, nobody stops the president from tweeting, and then very quickly he backtracks it. But can I, ask, can I ask a stupid question about this? And Susan, feel free to point out after I ask it that it is indeed a stupid question. Why does every administration start with the idea that you can remake Vladimir Putin in your own image? George W. Bush famously looks into his eyes and says he's seen his soul that didn't work out real well. I'm the Bar- soul of an honest man. Yeah, yeah, Barack Obama then comes in and says, we're going to hit the reset button. Well, reset to what? And then these guys come in and they, they think, you know, and maybe, of course, it may have something to do with the fact that Putin, you know, uh, was such a generous campaign supporter. But, um, but you know, they, these guys come in with the idea that the the only problem is that prior administrations didn't deal with this guy in a reasonable way. When is it that an administration is going to come in with an understanding that Vladimir Putin is exactly who he appears to be and that there's no <laughs> delicious subtext in which there's some happy relationship we're going to have with this guy? What a stupid question. <laughs> I mean, look, I, I don't begin to have the uh, the answer to that. Um, what I will say is I do think there is an explanation for and how we got – stupid to answer. <laughs> I don't even dignify it with a response. Um, no, I, I do have sort of like a, a theory as to how we got to this impenetrable cybersecurity unit, which I just don't actually understand what those words even mean in sequence. And that's a not terrible idea that then gets Trumpified because he's his instincts are wrong and he's not that smart and not that detail-oriented. And that's that there's some discussion about needing to reach a series of cyber norms with Russia, which has been a goal of lots of administrations and was one of the major accomplishments of Obama's tenure was reaching the agreement with Xi Jinping to not have, you know, against economic espionage. They worked for a long time on uh, establishing these, I think, four or five cyber norms that they were going to agree to. Now, mixed sort of reviews as to whether or not that was ultimately successful. Um, you know, but that was viewed as an accomplishment to have an adversary in a space in which we had um, uh, very different understandings about what was, what was acceptable, reaching an agreement that was favorable to the United States, and and having a process in place to sort of monitor that and 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 establish that norm moving forward. So I can see sort of um, you know competent, reasonable White House staffers saying, okay, we need to reach an agreement with Russia on cyber about what is acceptable, what isn't acceptable, where we're going to draw the lines. Then Trump gets in there. 
And he doesn't understand the difference between that kind of agreement about sort of lines and norms and instead is like, yeah, we're going to come to an agreement. We're going to work together and not just work together on norms probably against election hacking, but a working group on election (laughs) hacking, which is just bizarre. And so that's my best account of sort of like how how he tweets it. So I think that's actually, that's a good hypothesis, but it also, I think, helps to um, begin to answer Ben's really dumb question. Ben, I can't believe you asked that. Which is that perhaps American policymakers, and not only the president of the United States, and not only this president, but maybe American policymakers just have a really hard time embracing the notion that Russia is not China, Putin is not Xi Jinping, This is not a power that, because it is a large global actor, feels a stake in a certain degree of international order or in having rules that they know what they are and how to play by them. You know, China has a lot of interests, material interests, in the free trade regime, in, you know, in uh, all kinds of international norms, and therefore can be a partner to us on some of this stuff. But Putin is primarily interested in regime security and regime survival and his and the source of his power is nationalism and and what he wants is spheres of influence. And so those international norms that we think of as the value of them is a given, he doesn't. And I think that American policymakers actually have a really hard time accepting that there are big power governments that don't think about the world the way we think about the world. All right, let's move on to object lessons. Ben, would you like to share with the class? I would. Um, So I was a fan of Alexander Hamilton before he was cool. I just want that on the record. Frame $10 bills on your wall. I like the guy can write. The guy, he thought out of the box. And boy, could he sing. Yeah, he sure could. He was smart as hell. Yeah, he's all right. And he wrote... So voluminously that you could actually, if you wanted, create a modern political column out of writing that he did at the time. A lot of it's about Rome and sort of an- analysis of democracy and republicanism in, in that context. And so this morning, I uh, want to bring people's attention to uh, a, a column he wrote on the 18th of August, 1792 entitled Objections and Answers Respecting the Administration, uh, and particularly the following passage in it, which I will read in its entirety. The truth, unquestionably, is that the only path to a subversion of the republican system of the country is by flattering the prejudices of the people and exciting their jealousies and apprehensions to throw affairs into confusion and bring on civil commotion. When a man unprincipled in private life, desperate in his fortune, bold in temper, possessed of considerable talents, having the advantage of military habits, despotic in his ordinary demeanor, known to have scoffed in private at the principles of liberty, 
when such a man is seen to mount the hobby horse of popularity, to join in the cry of danger to liberty, to take every opportunity of embarrassing the central government and bringing it under suspicion, to flatter and fall in with all the nonsense of the zealots of the day, it may justly be suspected that his object is to throw things into confusion that he may ride the storm and direct the whirlwind. Give that man a Twitter account. Yeah. yeah it's the, it's the original tweet for everything. Right? It's a Federalist paper. Wow. I just everything. tweeted it, and uh, it uh, already has 489 retweets. Uh, its its ratio is doing well. Now Ben's just bragging about the fact that he's kicked all of our butts in Twitter followers. So true. So we'll never catch up. Uh, Susan, um, you have a I have a very exciting object lesson. I have Comey tapes. What? And what? I mean this literally. I have unheard tapes of one James B. Comey speaking. Um. Were I they leaked wanna, to you from drop. the White House? They were not leaked from the White House. <laughs> yeah, where'd you get them, Susan? <laughs> so I was cleaning out. Yes, they came in a manila envelope this morning. <laughs> I was cleaning out my desk this week, and I found in the back this like CD that had a recording from a session that Ben had put together. Wait, for the millennials listening, what's a CD? <laughs> the compact disc on which data is deposit. stored. Um, this, is, uh, this is a workshop that Ben and Gabby Bloom had put together before for uh, writing their book, The Future of Violence. Um, which you should buy. Which you should buy um, and all read. Uh, and uh, this is uh, whenever I was still in law school at the time. And so I uh, have a copy of this recording because I had done some of the note taking uh, of this session. Um, but one James B. Comey was in attendance. And I believe mm-hmm. one Shane Harris mm-hmm. was also in attendance. He was. So these <laughs> that was are the, the first Harris time I ever really met tapes. and hung out with Jim Comey. And I have it. Yeah, you're there. The tapes. God, what did I say? But Susan, will are you going to be releasing the Comey tapes? I cannot because the sacrosanct off the record oh. uh, discussion. I cannot breach. I think uh, it was technically Chatham House, but like whatever. Yeah, but I don't know. Obscure all their voices. To be fair, totally I don't know that yeah. there's anything. Here we would call it off the record, but up in Cambridge, they call it Chatham exactly, House. Exactly. <laughs> but if. If, w- what will we do if uh, if we receive a production request for these super secret comments <laughs> from the House or Senate Intelligence Committee? I, I would have no choice but to comply, obviously. Well, first we'll yeah. have to find a CD player. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I would just like to point out that the faster way for them to learn the wisdom of that uh, session would be to uh, read the future of violence because <laughs> Gabby and I did in, in a few hundred pages what took many, many hours of, of that session to discuss. Yeah, we should all be getting royalties from that book. All right, well, that brings us to the end of the podcast. Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find our show archive at our website. You can follow us on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter at RATL Security. You don't need to follow Ben because like 100,000 some people. Yeah, everybody everybody already if you're, ben, if you're choosing between following Ben line. and Rational Security, just go follow Totally go with Rational Security. <laughs> uh, be sure to leave us a rating and a review, preferably a good one, uh, when you download from iTunes 
iTunes. Actually, now it's Apple Podcast or your favorite podcatcher. We really appreciate it. It helps other people find the podcast, and there are many more people uh, now coming on to find the podcast, which is great. So welcome again to you all. Um, our audio engineer is Quinta Jurassic. The show is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell. Our music was performed this week by Donald Trump Jr. and his high-quality transparent jug band. <laughs> awesome. I love that. Yeah. Ooh, and a special shout-out to listener Matt Fulton for the title of yes. this week's episode. Matt, another longtime loyal listener. And uh, yes, as soon as I, I saw that proposed title, we, I think everybody here unanimously just said yes. So thanks, Matt. Uh, on behalf of my... Oh, actually, no, of course, Sophia Yan does the music. You know that. Okay, whatever. But. Sophia Yan could have a jug band, by the way. And also, Sophia Yan did not pick this week to quit sniffing glue. No, so she <laughs> so she's doing just she's fine. She's fine. She's great. We sent her some new glue this morning. <laughs> <laughs> On behalf of my friends, Susan Hennessy, Ben Wittes, and Tamara Kaufman Wittes, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening.